Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios right in the heart of New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Louisiana is a state of rice growers and rice eaters. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we sit down with native son Richard McCarthy, who has some surprising things to share about the role of rice and its cultivation on Asian societies. You may remember Richard as co-founder of the Crescent City Farmers Market, or for his role as the former executive director of Slow Food USA. Now we can add author to Richard's accomplishments with the publication of Kuni, a Japanese vision and practice for urban-rural reconnection. Richard shares the revolutionary ideas and practices that are preserving some of Japan's rural areas and their culture. And then we get an up-close look at Louisiana's rice production with expert Steve Linscombe. Steve currently serves as director of the USA Rice Federation, the national trade organization for rice. But for most of his career, he was instrumental in innovating Louisiana's rice varieties and cultivation methods at LSU's Rice Research Station in Crowley. And when it comes to innovators, we've got some experts in the house. Natalie Jayro, president and CEO of Second Harvest Food Bank and Margie Green of Sprout Nola join us to talk about the inspirational work they're doing to connect our small farms with the distribution systems of Second Harvest to bring fresh, locally grown food to the hungry poor of our state. We're taking a look at agriculture and innovation from the ground up, literally on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Richard McCarthy, co-author of Cooney, a Japanese vision and practice for urban-rural reconnection, with my co-author, Siyoshi Sekihara. Activist Richard McCarthy is always looking for a new way to find community and connection through food. He's co-founder of the Crescent City Farmers Market and was instrumental to the growth of the slow food movement. In his book, Kuni, Richard explores a new movement from Japan that offers a model for sustainable and healthy communities. Founded by Siyoshi Sekahara, the Kuni movement creates alternative rural communities throughout Japan, linking them to urban dwellers. Richard began by telling us how he came to visit a Japanese Kuni for the first time. So what happened was, well, I began a learning exchange with the Japan Society to look at creative efforts that are in play 
in Japan to revive rural communities. And I met my co-author, Siyoshi Sekihara, who in his small, isolated, rural rice-growing community um, has found a very creative way to reinvent and reimagine the sense of place and to revive old traditions, to look after the ecosystem and the elderly and the young in that place so that um, they can rebuild Kuni. And he has taken this ancient term, this 8th century terminology for the Japanese nation to mean instead community. And when we met each other, we thought, oh my gosh, we're opposite sides of the same coin because I'm always in the city looking out to rural to forge allies, and he is in rural um, forging allies with the city dwellers. First, I think people have to wrap their brains around what was really happening in Japan. There were these beautiful ancient dwellings out there in the rural countryside that were just being abandoned. I mean, it sounds like the Dust Bowl without <laughs> the agricultural disaster. Yeah. In, in the post-war Japan, and I think certainly by the 70s and 80s, people were abandoning, and again, this, this was post-war period of dramatic change, abandoning their rural villages for a future in the city, the modern industrial Japanese model of corporatism, of bigger is better, the size of Tokyo, you know, kept on growing and growing and growing. This happened at such a pace that these gorgeous 200-year-old um, wood frame farmhouses would be left, and the descriptions are quite remarkable, left so quickly that they'd leave the dishes in, in the sink. They would leave almost anything from their old life because they would never need it again. Shocking. Truly shocking. There are small communities where not only can you not find people to vote, you can't find people to run for office. And the village mayors have skills that they are only equipped to handle what they know. And what they know is, well, the community would manage things and then the government would manage things and now no one is managing things. And so what Sekihara created was an NGO, a nonprofit that aggregated these communities and really replaced local government. And so this, through my lens, always a political lens, is thinking about well, what is this political project? Hmm. And what does it remind me of? And like the question, does it remind me of the kibbutz model? Well, it does in some ways because it is cooperative agriculture. These are traditional, beautiful rice-growing regions in the mountains, a stone's throw from the Sea of Japan with these wonderful rivers that, that come down the mountains and from the rice fields to the Sea of Japan. Um, beautiful areas. Um, they hold on to many assets like their houses that they either let rot or they restore. Um, they have incredible food growing traditions, not only the rice, and the rice is so coveted because it's in the clean water, uh, the mountain pack of snowpack in the mountains enables uh, it to be such clean rice that's perfect for making sake. So people would buy the rice. They would buy the umabushi plums that are produced in the, you know, cured in the sun, no chemical additives, packaged beautifully because, of course, we're talking about Japan where yeah. everything is packaged so beautifully. And their consumers 
recognized that these, this was a special place. And what excited me was that the consumers began to sign up to get the latest detail of what's available when and, and, and when they could next come out to the farms and to the community, maybe four hours away via fast train from Tokyo, so great distances. And they'd come out for weekends and stay in the farmhouses and visit the farmhouses that have been converted into cafes or um, a community museum, a low-tech community museum that's meant to protect the memory of a place. This is so interesting, Richard, what you are describing here, because I can see the ties to Louisiana. Number one, that magic four-letter word, rice. But the other fascinating piece of this really is the tourism piece, Mm -hmm. the fact that somehow Sekihara has accomplished making or inciting these city dwellers to come and visit and see where their food comes from, a very different equation Mm. than a farmer's market. It's almost the opposite. I mean, what has always excited me about this question of infrastructure and intent is it takes a certain kind of organizing to get your products to the people. So drive or organize to get your products to the city where the consumers are, where you make your living. And the alternative approach is instead of building up that infrastructure, what does it take to get the people to come out to you? And we've seen certainly many great examples of what we would call agritourism, uh, whether it's you pick them operations for berries or uh, the agritourism with sports fishing. But it does tend to be very much my farm, my boat. Mm -hmm. And what excites me about this project, maybe much like the farmer's market where it's this balance between cooperation and competition, is that the community is the instigator that attracts people to come and spend time in nature, which when you live in, you know, a megacity of, you know, 10 million, 15 million people, you crave some sense of calm This is why you get this phenomena in Japan of um, forest bathing, Mm -hmm. to go out and just disconnect from our technical devices, technological devices, and and, and reconnect to sights and smells around us. And this is what people are looking for. Uh, Along with that um, comes this concept. Once Sekihara has the tourists interested in the rice, and they're coming out to these little villages, they create something called the Rice Covenant. Would you explain to me this Rice Covenant? Because Cooney is also a way to deal with disaster Mm. and introduce a resilience that I don't think exists in any way in this country. I agree. Uh, The Rice Covenant is where my eyes lit up when it was described to me by Sekihara and we were walking around the village and him describing to me that when you purchase the rice from their community, you not only are a consumer, you become an honorary citizen of that community. And there are Shinto festivals and harvest festivals that would only be open 
to the community members and experiences that you as a consumer are not just a consumer, you're party to the rice covenant. I think of it within the context of the farmer's market. We always would describe it within the confines of a social contract. Mm -hmm. There are certain rules in the market, there are certain expectations, and we will hold ourselves to them. Similarly, as a party to the rice covenant, you as a consumer can think of your relationship with this isolated but safe rural community where there's always food because they grow it. Um, it's like an insurance policy. And that should resonate for us here in Louisiana where when we need to go inland, where do we go? Who do we have relationships with? Where do we find safe haven? And it's interesting because the relationship with disaster and the Japanese is they are so used to disasters, tsunami, earthquake, volcanic, um, plague, they get to get that one with us too. Um, but they are so equipped and prepared for disaster, they design their lives around the concept that it will happen. It's just a question of when and are you prepared. And so this is woven into that idea of this should be an extension of your insurance policy of living in a big city is to have a relationship with people who live in rural areas that will give you safe haven. And that has indeed happened. Well, Richard, something that is so clear is that the Japanese culture, along with their mindset, are so totally different mm -hmm. from Americans. So you've been traveling the world with the farmer's market coalition since the 1990s. <laughs> Where do you think that this type of regionalism really could be possible in America? Well, I, I do think we can look at the Japanese as being so so precise, so different, so finicky. You know, there's sort of a Japanese fetish that, oh, my goodness, only if. Well, that's their story. Our story, of course, is that we're messy and we love to blend things. And, and that's our story that we should, we should trade on, we should understand. Um, so I, I look at their story of, of Cooney and of how they're reviving rural communities by connecting to urban dwellers as – not as a metaphor because I think there's more to it than that. There's specific infrastructure decisions that they make. There are programmatic decisions they make to find their market, to rebrand their sense of place. Here, we have the same opportunity. And we, it, has, it really starts with individuals who come together as a community of people who care, mm -hmm. who care about it. And, and, and uh, Sekihara is a big fan <laughs> of Sisyphus. Um, and he's certainly not of the social enterprise era where I have some clever idea that will hack the solution, you know, hack the problem with a solution. Um, he thinks it is just long, hard work. That's very unpopular these days to just stick to it. Um, people who have founded organizations or who believe in a place and defend that place know how hard it is. But what we do need to find are what are those glimmers of hope, those sort of emblematic moments or 
innovations that bring us together. I think the farmers markets are one. I think community gardens are another. School gardens are another. Um, Agritourism experiences are another. Most of what works works out of experience because we change people through their what they get to experience when they taste and smell and, ex- and visit someplace, they then learn to care about it. I don't think it has to be someplace exotic like in Japan. It can be a part of our neighborhood that we just start to care about and look after and rebrand the place because of how we experience it. And what we're finding all over the world is there's an incredible growth of farmers markets all over the planet, especially in the global south, and especially in places where we are losing trust. And I look at markets as a mechanism to build trust. I look at what Sakihara is doing in Japan as a way to rebuild trust between people who have lost track of one another. Well, I suspect that you have met um, your Japanese doppelganger. Yeah. And um, I I hope to meet him myself one day, and I can hardly wait to see what sort of kuni you can accomplish. (laughs) So thank you for writing this incredible map to a new life that Mm. I can only just begin to imagine. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Poppy. That was Richard McCarthy, co-author of Cooney, a Japanese vision and practice for urban-rural reconnection. When we come back from a short break, we'll talk with Steve Linscombe, whose life's work has had long-ranging positive effects on Louisiana's all-important rice crop. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, 
a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. My name is Steve Lenscom, and I am the executive director of the Rice Foundation. Steve Lenscom knows a thing or two about rice. A native of Vermilion Parish, Steve literally grew up in Louisiana rice country. In 1982, he started working with the LSU Ag Center. After six years on campus, he moved to the Rice Research Station just out of Crowley, where he worked for the Rice Breeding Program for nearly 30 years. He was director of the station for half of that time. Steve witnessed and played a large role in growing Louisiana's rice industry. 33 new varieties of rice were advanced during his tenure, which reduced pest problems and boosted yields. The day after he retired from the rice station in 2017, he began his work with the USA Rice Federation, the national trade organization for rice. Steve joined us by Zoom to share his rice wisdom with us. I began by asking him about rice varieties from a consumer's perspective. For somebody going to the grocery store to buy rice, how are they going to be able to tell anything more than medium grain to long grain? I mean, yes, we see basmati and jasmine marked specially, but when it comes to just that white rice, how, how does the consumer know? Yeah, if you, you know, you want a long grain brand of rice, one thing that we kind of concentrate on, the plant breeders concentrate on, is when a new variety is developed, you're not going to have something that's going to cook dramatically different than the varieties that it's replacing. So it's, it's kind of a situation where the, the long grain variety that you buy that's produced by brand X, and then you got one right next to it produced by brand Y, they are going to cook pretty consistently. Now the jasmines that you mentioned and the boss bodies, you know, they cook very differently. They have the different aroma and the medium grains cook somewhat differently. But one thing that I would suggest that folks do when they go to a grocery store, we do have quite a bit of variation in the quality of rice. So what I'm talking about there is some of the bags, some of the better types of rice are very clear or very translucent. They don't have a lot of what we call chalk. Chalk looks just like you would think it, it, it would look. It's, it's kind of an opaque area in the grain. So if you see a bag of rice that, you know, that's why they put it, most of them in plastic bags so you can actually visually evaluate the rice before you buy it. If you see something with a lot of chalk, put it down and look around a little bit, try to find one that uh, basically is almost totally translucent because it's going to cook better and it's going to cook more consistently. 
So how long has rice been grown in Louisiana? Would you give us a little history primer? You know, there's actually two centers of origin, one in Africa and one in China, and there's a little bit of disagreement. But there is evidence in areas of China where they have been growing rice for eight plus thousand years. Uh, so it's actually the, you know, I would say China is the epicenter of where rice really got started. But coming to the United States in, in the late 1600s, it got started in South Carolina. Uh, and it was very important in that area until kind of some of the upheaval as a result of the Civil War uh, really kind of started to lead to the decline of rice production in, in that area, the low country of South Carolina. There are different theories, but the one that kind of most people tend to lean on is that a ship wrecked off the coast of South Carolina, and it had been to the island of Madagascar. And there was some rice on that ship. Uh, the name of the rice eventually became what they called Carolina Gold. And that's where the original seed that allowed that industry to get started came from. In your work down here, you were doing a lot of breed development with rices. So tell me a little bit about the varieties and why your work was necessary. So you're always looking to improve yields, maintain and improve quality. But you're also, you know, think about Southwest Louisiana, a lot of rain, a lot of insects, the rain, the humidity, the cloud cover cause a lot of diseases. We probably have, you know, more issues with diseases in Southwest Louisiana than anywhere else where rice is grown in the United States. So you're continuously trying to improve disease resistance in these varieties. You have new diseases that, that come about periodically. So, you know, you, you got to be looking forward. And if a new thing comes about, you need to have a pretty short timeline for getting disease resistance to that new disease. Insect resistance as well. But if we look at what the average yield was, uh, when I, and I'm not taking credit for this, but when I started with LSU in the early 80s, the average yield in Louisiana was under 4,000 pounds per acre. Today we're growing rice, our average yield is over 7,000 pounds per acre. Wow. So we have not doubled it in 40 years, but we have increased it pretty dramatically. So, you know, and one thing I'm working on today with USA Rice is the whole area of, of sustainability. The, the thing that is really unique about the rice in, in Southwest Louisiana is most of the farms are multi-generation. You know, we have some sixth-generation farmers out there. So it's very, very common for, you know, a farmer today to be growing rice on the land. His great-great-grandfather grew rice on. So when we're talking about sustainability, you know, our farmers are always forward-thinking, and they want their children to take over their farming operation. And you know, the long-term thought process is they want to leave that land and the water systems and everything 
related to their rice production in better shape than when they found it. So that's the backbone of sustainability. So, you know, it's pretty neat when you look at some of these families that have been in rice as, as long as they have. That's, that's another thing that makes it real interesting. If you've got six generations farming on the land, how do they keep from depleting their land? How do they care for their land? I mean, th- there's certainly a lot of things you can do. For example, if you look at certain areas where soil erosion is a big problem, where you're losing your topsoil, what our producers have done, they have gone in and precision level these fields where there's just not much potential for erosion. They set up systems in the field. There there are different ways that you can set up the, the drainage system in your field that really makes it difficult to to lose salt to erosion. Steve, what do you think the future of rice production is in Louisiana? I think it's pretty stable. I've got 40 years working in rice profession, not counting when I worked in rice fields when I was much younger. We're growing for the most part what we were growing when I started in this business. One thing that we have seen in my career, think about how crawfish production has exploded in the last 40 years in the rice area of Louisiana. The ability to produce crawfish helps our producers kind of weather the low prices on rice. So it kind of gives a stability to their overall farming operation because they're not just dependent on rice production, they're, you know, the, the crawfish production helps prop up rice sometimes. And sometimes the rice production helps prop up the crawfish. Well, this has been such a treat to hear directly from you all of these wonderful things about the Louisiana rice industry. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. That was rice expert Steve Linscombe, executive director of the Rice Foundation. What are Louisiana agriculture's most profitable crops? Stay tuned. And we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. 
Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this summer. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What are Louisiana agriculture's most profitable crops? It may surprise you to learn that Louisiana's waterways, as well as the fields, figure into this equation. Louisiana produces 25% of the nation's seafood. The crawfish, shrimp, Alligators and oysters harvested here bring a return of over $2 billion annually. That said, it really surprised me to learn that our number one field-grown cash crop is soybeans. And we're not talking edamame here. Louisiana soybeans are used in vegetable oils, shortening, margarine, bread flour, soy milk, meat substitutes, fibers, plastics, ink, and livestock feed. But catch this, when it comes to crops, neck and neck with soybeans is Louisiana's corn production. And that's also not the super sweet corn on the cob you might be thinking of. We grow field corn here, which is used as livestock feed and to make ethanol. But don't despair, delicious edible sugarcane Rice and sweet potatoes are also in the top 10 of Louisiana's agricultural products. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Louisiana is a food purchase program that buys food from local farmers from socially disadvantaged backgrounds and feeds it to communities that need it most. The state-funded program is investing nearly $5 million in local producers, allowing five Louisiana food banks to offer fresh produce, meats, seafood, and rice. To learn more about Nourish Louisiana, we spoke with two of the program's partners, Second Harvest and Sprout NOLA. I'm Natalie Jaro, President and CEO of Second Harvest Food Bank. I'm Margie Green, and I'm at Sprout NOLA. I'm the Executive Director. Margie, for people who might not be familiar with Sprout NOLA, 
what is your primary work? Yeah, our primary work is supporting farmers and gardeners, specifically in southeast Louisiana, but a couple of our programs go throughout the state. We're really excited that we have a lot of partnerships with other farmer and food support agencies throughout the state through uh, a coalition called Louisiana Small Scale Agriculture Coalition. But our work is working on land access, technical assistance, market development for farmers with a specific focus on farmers who are underserved by general programs, you know, USDA programs, federal programs, or just societally like have had a harder time getting access to resources and funds. A couple of years ago for us at Second Harvest, we were dipping our toe in the water. We got a grant. Margie was one of the people we turned to first to kind of help advise us on how it is that we approach this work of working with local disadvantaged farmers to help them build assets. Uh, lo and behold, uh, about, I guess, a year ago now, the federal government, as part of its uh, Recovery Act money, did something very progressive, which is kind of unheard of. And they made the, this money available to every state to work with disadvantaged farmers and to use that food uh, for people that are food insecure. We were thrilled at Second Harvest because for the first time you were connecting all ends of the food system, the, the people that were growing the food and the people that needed the food the most that didn't always have access to it. So. Louisiana Department of Agriculture and Forestry called us up and said, what do you think of this? We said, absolutely. They said, well, you write the plan. And then we turned to Marky and others to help us figure out the best way to spend over $4 million with these farmers, but also leave them with markets with better chances of building assets and being strong, vital organizations. Whole goal of this is that we want sustainability built into everything that we're doing and that these farmers are better off as a result of this program. Yeah, I think that the coolest thing about this program is where it lives between food access, the incredible work that Second Harvest is doing, and food production. Because like Natalie was saying, there's just this, like an imperative to help a community thrive on the whole. And so what we've seen is because of structural racism, specifically black farmers in Louisiana have had this underinvestment. And what's so amazingly progressive about this program is the nuts and bolts part that this partnership that we have, the Louisiana Small Scale Agriculture Coalition and um, Second Harvest, are working together to do this allows for us to do technical assistance for farmers. It allows us to leverage private funding to help develop infrastructure. So that's washing and packing infrastructure and get that to communities, specifically black growers that haven't had those same accesses to services. So you'll see that there's lots of shared infrastructure for cooling, for washing and packing in some more supported or white farming communities. And that's not something that we've seen that investment in. So by working together, we can actually do basically an intake of farmers. And as I mentioned before, uh, one of the things that we have to bring to the table is capacity. Um, what does Second Harvest have? We have warehouses, trucks, freezers, coolers, kitchens. Um, we just built a second line in our kitchen in Harahan that we're putting at the uh, disposal of local farmers. Hopefully they are doing some value-added processing, which again works towards their building assets and, and creating an income stream for them. And we're working with the mayor out in Lake Charles, and we're hoping to put up a microenterprise kitchen there um, and perhaps even some retail um, 
frontage where we can bring in farmers, they can produce their product right there. We can sell it to people who are driving down I-10 and as they leave Louisiana, here's your last stop to get some of this great Louisiana food and recipe. So that's, uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because <laughs> that's in the dream phase, but we're having that discussion. We think we can make that happen. But for us at Second Harvest, it's a space we want to be in permanently. If there's something we can do to make it possible for farmers to thrive and the people that we serve to have enough nutritious food to eat, we feel like that's a really win-win situation. Is there a through line here where Second Harvest is actually purchasing Mm -hmm. this food? So we have $4.8 million of federal funds coming down, which we think um, will give us, will yield 2 million pounds of food. And you're exactly right. Uh, One of the things that we can do is bring logistical and capacity to the table. So we'll have someone on staff with the help of Margie and um, this group of the small-scale agriculture group that can connect us with these farmers. So we're making sure we're reaching out to the right people. Then what we do is kind of make it happen, make the purchases, um, and then figure out how to get that food out into our food bank system so that it's having the best possible impact for people who are food insecure. And it might sound like, I think that it it sounds like sometimes that's so simple, right? We've got all this money and we're just going to make these purchases. And I would also like to demystify like the immense work of Second Harvest in sort of logistics and coordination and how that becomes a totally different ballgame when you're working with local food. And so that's another part of that partnership is like, when you're used to receiving food, you know, in a certain way and then distributing it in a certain way, this program really turns that all on its head. What does it look like to receive 300 pounds of food instead of 2,000 pounds of food at a time? What does that actually look like? So yesterday, two of our, uh, you know, two of our farmers that we've been working with for a really long time, some really old friends of both my organization and, and several other organizations in our coalition were able to be the inaugural purchase um, yesterday. So exciting. It's so cool. I think we're all like on the moon. Um, They were able to get this really amazingly fair market price, which is a cool part of this program. It Mm -hmm. enables us to not have anyone haggling. You know, it's, it's, it's true equity in that pricing structure, especially because these are purchases from black farmers or indigenous Mm -hmm. farmers, farmers of color. And so when we cannot be needling people down on that price, it's so important because that's part of that building equity. And I'm just like, I want to kind of shout out that we had that giant green onion purchase yesterday. And it's like day kind of feels like day one. It was green onions. Yes. That's amazing. And uh, what do you do then with all those green onions? Oh, there are 800,000 people throughout the state of Louisiana who are food insecure every single day. So for this particular program, that food is going out through our food bank networks. And you know, we're one of five Feeding America food banks in the state of Louisiana. So we're portioning this out to the food banks to get it into those communities where people are most at risk for hunger. Uh, But like I said, I mean, that's part of this program. But, you know, it's not the... um the total hope, the, to- the the hope is that we're going to help these farmers build markets and sustainability. Maybe it's with schools, 
hospitals, whatever way we can think of, if we can bring some capacity to bear so that the volume can get to a place where farmers can afford crop insurance, you know, or buy the kind of equipment. Margie, I mean, one of the learnings that we had um, and one of the strange things about this federal money is that we learned after the fact that you can't use it to buy equipment. Well, what does a disadvantaged farmer need more than anything else? It's equipment. So we've already gone back to the federal government and say, hey, if you are really serious about a program like this, you have to think about some capital investments to help these farmers grow. All of those kind of equipment um, investments are huge. And then the last thing I'll say is cold storage is a thing that we see really, really frequently on farms, especially farms that are further away from markets like New Orleans, where they might need to harvest two or three times and keep something in a cooler before they can make delivery to the city what with gas prices or even with poor transportation. So coolers are a big piece of infrastructure that we see people need access to. And you're creating hubs with some of these things, right? That's correct, yeah, allowing and people to aggregate. And sometimes the food bank can help be a hub because, again, uh, cold storage is something that we have. It's something we can do and something that we can offer. So thinking about that going forward, um, because that would cost a farmer uh, here and make it impossible for them to get a good enough price, be paid enough for their their labor um, to actually be sustainable. Well, if we can fill that middle piece where we're helping them with the storage or the value-added processing, et cetera, or the transportation of food, now you have a farmer that's able to make a good living and people who can't normally afford really good fresh produce have access to this for the first time. And I love that because that's really fixing a food system problem and challenge that we have. How about that bag of groceries that might go home with a child who is perhaps not getting the nutrition? Explain that, how that works and that issue that you all deal with. You know, everything that Second Harvest does is through partners. We really hold that value very, very closely. It's collaborative. Whether it's a a community-based organization or a church or a nonprofit or a hospital or a school. Uh, so we work with more than a dozen schools right now. We have school pantries where the principals and the nurses that identify children that are exhibiting the signs of not having enough nutritious food can send a bag of staples home with that child to their families and they can see the immediate results and their ability to learn or the cancer clinic, UMC, and, and now Oshner, where we actually give uh, cancer patients who are going in for treatments a box of appropriate produce for them to take home. And it not only helps them improve their diet, but also alleviates the stress. So um, these are the kinds of partnerships Second Harvest loves to be involved in because it multiplies the impact of bringing food to the table. It, it brings food in the most helpful, nourishing way possible. That's why I like Nourish Louisiana as this program. It's a great name. It's a great program and so thrilling to be able to talk with you all about it. Thank you for lifting it up, Poppy. Thank you. That was Margie Green, Executive Director of Sprout NOLA, and Natalie J. Rowe, President and CEO of Second Harvest. 
they joined us to talk about the food purchase program, Nourish Louisiana. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you're looking for a Poppy's pop-up drag brunch, Join us on the last Sunday of each month through the summertime, June, July, and August at our home away from home, Tujac's Restaurant in New Orleans, French Quarter. You can make reservations and learn more by visiting tujacsrestaurant.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, Producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.